Well, I want to begin today as we continue in our sermon series in Genesis by just making clear from the beginning exactly what the main point of my sermon is today. Now, Lord willing, you'll be blessed if you listen to the rest of the sermon, but I'm just going to share with you right from the beginning the, the main point. And if you looked ahead in the bulletin, you know it already. And the main point is this, that God is faithful in our joys and in our sorrows. Or we might just summarize it by saying God is faithful in all things. That simple affirmation that God is faithful is perhaps one of the most simple things for us to say, but one of the most difficult truths for us to sincerely believe. I often make the distinction between what I call formal theology and functional theology. It's one thing to say formally, to say on paper, that we believe that God is faithful in all things. But it's something entirely different to believe it each day, to make our decisions, to set up our lives around that idea that God is faithful. The reality is most of us believe that God is faithful in principle, but we don't always trust it in practice. And what we find is that it often takes difficult circumstances, seasons of suffering, times of trial, to prove to us, to convince our stubborn minds that God truly is faithful. Well, well, today in our text, we are going to find a series of unfortunate events in Jacob's life. And I think by the end, you'll see how faithful our God is in, in joy and in sorrow. From Genesis chapter 35, I'll begin reading in verse 16. This is God's word to us. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. God, we ask that you would make our hearts, hard as they may be, into soft and 
receptive soil this morning, and we ask that your word would take root and would grow to bear much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's so interesting about this text is the presence of death. We had two deaths mentioned in our text for today, but right before the passage that I read in chapter 35 verse 8, there was another death mentioned, that of Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse. She must have played an important role in this family. We, we don't know how she fit in Jacob's family, but her death was significant enough to be mentioned in this collection of three losses. It's a bit of an aside, but I would point out that if you study the first half of chapter 15, you'll notice something interesting. I mentioned last week that following the massacre at Shechem, Jacob led his family in this sort of this time of corporate repentance, and they buried their idols beneath an oak tree at Shechem. And then immediately following that, Deborah dies, and she's buried beneath an oak tree as well, this time at Bethel. There's something significant, something special. You may have noticed this already in Genesis about trees in the biblical and redemptive narrative. We know this if we zoom out from the story. We recognize that the story begins with trees in the Garden of Eden. It ends with trees in the new heavens and the new earth, if you've read the end of Revelation. And of course, the pinnacle of the story occurs when, as Peter worded it to us, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. I point this out not because it's all that profound and deep. It's actually probably a sermon for another time, but because it, I think it, it illustrates the cohesiveness of the story, of this redemptive journey, that, that God is doing something quite significant, quite intentional as he works out his plan through this messy and dysfunctional family. These are not isolated stories. They're part of God's orchestrated plan, right down to these details about trees. Well, as we consider how this unique chapter in Genesis displays the faithfulness of God, allow me to share three thoughts with you today. First one is this, that God is faithful on our worst day. Many of us are familiar with the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The words were written by a Methodist pastor by the name of Thomas Chisholm. He was a pastor for only about a year, served merely months in a small congregation in Kentucky before being forced to resign due to health problems. It's become pretty widely believed that Pastor Chisholm had deep and persistent mental health struggles that forced him out of first his teaching career and then from his pastorate. But in fact, his ministry didn't end when he was forced to resign as the pastor of that congregation. He went on to publish over 800 songs and poems, born primarily out of his deep and persistent struggle and pain. And in his most famous song, he reminds us of God's ever-present faithfulness with these words, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. I want you to hear this second line. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. 
And the song continues with lines that most of us are familiar with. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided, or strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Chisholm, in the midst of his own personal pain, points us to the great, enduring, unchanging faithfulness of God, even on our very worst day. That's exactly what we see in our text for today. Verse 16, Rachel is giving birth. The text says she's experiencing a difficult labor. And in verse 18, we find this mix of joy and sorrow. It says, as she breathed her last, she named her son. The story hit home for me this week as I was reading it again and and spending some time meditating on it, remembering uh, nearly 13 years ago when Angela was in labor for 36 hours before Macy was born through emergency C-section. And I'll never forget when our obstetrician came in to visit us, he said that 100 years ago, uh, both of them would have died. A day that's supposed to be the most exciting, one of the happiest in all of life for Jacob turned bitterly tragic. Rachel, his beloved wife, the wife that he had worked 14 years for, is now dead. Whatever our perspective on Jacob's family and marital decisions, we we know that he loved Rachel dearly. And so it's fitting to allow ourselves to sort of enter into and sense his grief and his pain combined with the joy of a new son. And what's maybe even more tragic about the story is the fact that this was the day that Rachel had been praying for. Benjamin's birth was the answer, the fulfillment of Rachel's prayer in Genesis 30, verse 24. She prayed that God would give her another son. And she lives only long enough to give him a name. Son of my sorrow. And she dies. It's worth noting our text reminds us that Rachel died and was buried at Ephrath, also known as Bethlehem. Well, I think that probably wouldn't have been all that significant for Jacob on that day. I have to think that there's a reason that God drops these hidden little gospel gems into a painful account for us to discover and be reminded of another child who would be born at Ephrath, one who would turn sorrow and loss into joy, triumph and victory in life. It's easy for us to see, stand back a thousand years and and recognize the faithfulness of God to Jacob, even on that worst day. But many of us have discovered that to be true as well. Many of you have walked through deep, dark valleys, only to discover at the end that God was, in fact, faithful in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, even when you couldn't see it and feel it in the moment. Tim Keller rightly observed that Job, from the scriptures, never fully saw the reason for his suffering. But Keller says he saw God, and that was enough. We can't always make sense of our experience. Many days we can't see our hand in front of our face, let alone be able to see the purpose for what we're experiencing in life. But we can look to the example of so many who have come before us, who have testified to the faithfulness of God, even on the hardest days. I've learned that standing next to parents as they bury their children. 
next to widows and widowers as they bury their spouse. Some of you have taught this lesson to me. I should be the one teaching it, right? Many of you have taught me this lesson that God is faithful even on our worst days. We, we might not see the full reason, but we see God. And that's enough. God is, God is faithful even on our worst day. This entire chapter is interesting in the sense that it includes these three deaths. Deborah and then Rachel and then in verses 27 through 29, Jacob goes back to visit his father Isaac in Mamre, and Isaac dies. What's interesting to note is that these three deaths, along with the other drama in this chapter, were combined together not because of their proximity, not because of their chronology, but because of their theme. We know that Isaac doesn't actually die until after Joseph is sold into slavery. But it's included here. Moses includes it here, and I think for a specific reason, to prove a point. Genesis 35 is sort of this death chapter, and I'd argue that it's to prove a point about God's faithfulness. That he is faithful on our worst days. He is present. He is a comfort. He is a friend. He saves. Even when everything around us seems to be falling apart, God is faithful on our worst day. Second, God is faithful on our messiest day. I'm guessing some of you were caught off guard a little bit by the one-verse narrative that shows up immediately following Rachel's death. Verse 20, Rachel is buried. Verse 21, Jacob packs up his family and moves. And the very next verse, verse 22, we just have a one-verse story. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben, his oldest son, went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. And then in the clunkiest way imaginable, the text moves directly into a list of Jacob's 12 sons. Like Moses, as he was writing Genesis, throws in this, oh, by the way, Reuben slept with Bilhah, and then moving right along, here's the list of Jacob's sons. No explanation, no context, no softening of the story no rest of the story. Just throws it out there for us to sort of deal with in all of its awkwardness. But I think Moses, under the direction, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly what he was doing here. We thought that we were at rock bottom with this family, right? We thought like this family couldn't get any stranger, any more dysfunctional, any more complicated. When Reuben says, hold my beer, and he takes us to new depths, and it's like Moses is done giving an explanation. Like, he just moves right along. He's not, he's not even going to address it. He throws it in there, and then he's, he's just going to move along. It's sort of as if Moses is saying, you come to expect this, right? This is what this family does. You know how sometimes silence is louder than saying something? Like, let's say you say something offensive to someone on your way out of church this morning... And then you send him a text in a day or two, and you're like, hey, I, I hope I didn't hurt your feelings. And then you get nothing for days. That's loud silence, right? I think that's exactly what we have in our text here. The, the story just, Moses is just like, Let, let's move on. This family, sinful as they are, cannot derail God's redemptive plan. Their sin 
their dysfunction. Our sin does not lessen or water down or prevent or obscure the faithfulness of God. You see, God just remains faithful. Today, tomorrow, every day, even in your messiness, even in your sin, God's faithfulness will not be undone. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences, right? There are always natural consequences for the the decisions we make for our sin. We'll, We'll hear about that more in just a minute. We often view God as if he's sitting there waiting for us to mess up so that he can swing in and and punish us with his wrath. Just waiting for the opportunity to disinherit us. Many of us were raised with that vision of God in our minds. But if that's your picture of God, you've got it all wrong. But by faith, God is your loving father. That's the picture that scripture gives us. A loving father who is committed to you day in and day out through thick and thin. We may look back on our sin and wonder how anyone could love us. But our Heavenly Father does, and His love, of course, was proven for us on the cross. Jesus died for our messiest day, and the grace that He pours out is sufficient for whatever mess we find ourselves in, whatever mess we've experienced in our past, whatever the condition of our family or our marriage or our work situation, God's grace is sufficient for our messiest day. And Genesis doesn't even try to explain Reuben's actions with this one. The narrative just moves on testifying to the faithfulness of God. A God who continues to save. That brings me to my third point today, and that's this, that God is faithful to save and redeem. You might not be surprised to hear that this one-verse narrative of Reuben and what he did in our text is not included just to further illustrate the dysfunction of this family. So I think it's already been thoroughly established. Uh, While verse 22 isn't given any explanation or context in chapter 35, we find later in Genesis that the account was included for a very specific reason. that We won't really understand unless we skip forward to Genesis chapter 49. And so we're going to do that today. Genesis 49 contains the words of Jacob right before his death. He gathers his 12 sons, and what we read is sort of part blessing, part condemnation, part prediction or prophecy. And so I'm going to read Genesis chapter 49, starting in verse 1. And hear how Moses weaves the events of the last couple weeks of our story together. It says this, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have 
killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And then verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You will return, return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Did you hear what happened there? Jacob first addresses his firstborn son, Reuben. And he says that because of Reuben's actions in our text for today, he will no longer excel. He will no longer be first. Reuben loses the blessing of the firstborn, and the reason is because of what he did in the story today. Like Cain and Ishmael and Esau before him, Reuben has lost the blessing and honor and power that was his. Remember, I've mentioned in past weeks that, that the firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance. Why? Because it was important to the father to ensure that the family name, the family prominence continued and so the double portion was there to ensure that the firstborn had a great opportunity to continue that prominence and influence but that blessing of the firstborn also meant that they were endowed with the family leadership that they were the one looked to as the patriarch of the family upon the father's death and so Reuben lost both the wealth as well as the position of leadership in the family but then who would the blessing go to. Jacob proceeds down the list to his second son. But Simeon, as well as the third son, Levi, had both lost their right to the blessing because of their actions in our text from last Sunday with the Shechemites. They led that massacre. Jacob prophesied that they would be scattered because of their sin. And so we arrive at the fourth son, Judah. And Jacob declares that Judah would be the son of the promise. That his brothers would bow down to him. That the scepter, the, the royal staff held by the king would never depart from him. He says that Judah would be a majestic lion. The king of animals. A symbol of royalty and strength. And we will find out in coming weeks that this was an act of grace. Not merit on the part of Judah. That this was God's faithful plan to redeem his people, not because of the goodness of Judah. Judah is described in creative imagery, washing his clothes in wine, tying his donkey to a vine, his eyes dark, his teeth whiter than milk, images of success and wealth and royalty. And of course, we know that they're all pointing in one direction, right? Because from Judah would come David. From David would come our Savior. You see, God is faithful to save and redeem. He weaves together the complex family history and drama and sin, the deaths mentioned in our text, the 
murderous sin of last Sunday's sermon, the immorality of this week's narrative, and we can't help but come to the clear and convincing conclusion that God is and always will be faithful. He is faithful to save. He's going to save the world from sin, the sin of of rape and adultery and murder and any, any other thing that comes up cannot derail his plan, cannot thwart his redemptive mission. God is faithful in our joys and in our sorrows. And this is good news for us. That as we stumble our way through this dark world, through the darkness that sometimes we create on our own, that God is faithful in our moments of deepest suffering. God is faithful in our times of greatest joy. God is faithful on the day of our greatest failure. God is faithful. And he would, through the offspring of Judah, send his son who would die for the sin of Reuben and the sin of Simeon and Levi and for your sin and my sin and the true and better Jacob, the true and better Judah would one day rise from the dead, ensuring that Deborah and Rachel and Isaac and even one day you and I would be raised again by the promise and command of God on that great resurrection day. God is faithful. Whatever happens today, tomorrow, next year, God is faithful in our joys and in our sorrows. Unto death, God is faithful. And unto resurrection day, God will remain faithful. That is our true and great comfort and hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are faithful in all things, in our joys and in our sorrows that you are faithful each day despite our faithlessness and our unfaithful hearts, despite the messes that we make, despite our sin. And so we give you praise today that your faithfulness goes as far as your work in saving the world, goes as far as the cross, the tree upon which our Savior died. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention this morning to communion, may you prepare our hearts to receive your grace to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.